The Interchange is brought to you by Fluence, a global leader in battery-based energy storage, technology, and services. From commercializing the first grid-connected battery systems in 2008 to the multi-gigawatt fleet being deployed for customers globally today, the Fluence team is ensuring that storage is the cornerstone of our zero-carbon electric future. Learn more at FluenceEnergy.com and join them on their mission to transform the way we power our world. Support also comes from Wood McKenzie, and that is our parent company. Wood McKenzie recently acquired Genscape. So you might know Genscape as a data company that puts super powerful cameras on farmland to keep an eye on power plants. Well, now Genscape has added its intelligence to the GTM Wood McKenzie supercomputer. As coronavirus continues to impact the power sector, the Wood McKenzie power team is delivering actionable real-time data on how this new reality is shaping demand profiles day-to-day and what it means for outlooks on markets and pricing years into the future. Learn more at woodmckenzie.com. Green Tech Media Podcast. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Thanks for being here. And Shail Khan is out there in Berkeley, California. He's managing director at Energy Impact Partners, a VC firm focused on the clean energy transition. Hello, Shale. Hello, Stephen. Do you, do you feel a presence here with us? I do. I'm not sure what it is. My knees are swelling. The bunion on my foot is throbbing, but I can't identify why it feels so familiar. Very eerie, very familiar feeling. Yeah, I, I feel it too. That presence. I don't have any bunions though. I can't <laughs> can't relate to that part. That presence is Abe Yakel, managing partner and co-founder of Congruent Ventures. Abe, how are you? I'm doing great. I, I thought you were about to tell us that you had Lyme disease, but instead <laughs> it's just me. So thanks for having me. <laughs> Congruent makes early stage investments in a wide range of sectors in clean tech and climate tech. And Abe joins us periodically to riff on how the VC world is thinking about this space. He and he and Shale uh, go deep into, uh, you know, where where the money is going. And so uh, exactly six months ago today, you were on the show. It's nice to be back. A lot has changed since we last had you on the show, for sure. So uh, according to figures from Crunchbase... Venture capital deals were down 44% from March to June compared with last year. Seed stage deals took the biggest hit, down nearly 60%, but Series B deals also took a hit. So it's clear that it's just harder to raise money. Obviously, travel startups are taking the biggest hit, but what about companies in climate and clean tech? Are they insulated? What does any reorientation tell us about where the world is headed? Uh, So we are going to hear from Shale and Abe on what they're actually seeing take place and what's going to happen next. So Shale, what are you seeing right now? Well, I think it's interesting to start the conversation in the context of the last time that we had Abe on, because so exactly six months ago, pre-COVID, late January, we had a conversation about climate tech venture capital, the new term that we're using for what was formerly clean tech or sustainability or resource efficiency or whatever we were defining it as historically. And the reason that we had the conversation six months ago is that it felt like there was a big new wave coming that was comprised of a combination of lots of new startup activity. And then also, I think most Importantly, at the time, there had been a bunch of proclamations from mainstream investors, folks like Union Square Ventures and Sequoia, saying we're into climate tech now, and in some cases announcing deals to go along with that. 
So that was what was happening pre-COVID. So I think it's worth talking about like the extent to which COVID has shifted that momentum that was clearly building at the time and whether we think it's a blip or, you know, set the whole thing off course. So Abe, let's maybe start with this. Have we seen new proclamations from mainstream investors or new major investments from mainstream investors since COVID hit, for example, to suggest that the momentum in that world has continued apace or has that all dried up? There's a big question here about what those announcements and pronouncements made and meant in the first place. The reality is is it was the a lot of these firms expressing their interest in learning more about the space. There was no defined strategy in chasing deals within climate and energy. But there have been some deals done at the earliest stages of capital formation, so kind of seed and series A. I would not remark that there have been a, a ton of late stage, large, frothy deals that have, have come about. I wasn't expecting their, those to show up either. One digression on this, the, the question that I think we wrestled with six months ago is what did this expressed interest actually mean in the ecosystem? I think the reality from what we've seen in the past, in the first wave of energy and clean tech investing, you know, starting back in 2005, 2006, the mainstream investment community kind of didn't dip their toe in. They jumped in with their clothes on. This time around, there, I think the intent was to dip their toe in, uh, see if the water was warm, and then jump in over time. And I still see a lot of that. There's still a lot of activity, interest, and conversations going on in, main, in the mainstream venture community focused on climate. Uh, in terms of actions, it's a little hard to tell. The signal-to-noise ratio with the pandemic is a little hard to, uh, to decipher. That is a good point about the difference between dipping your toe in this time around versus jumping in wholeheartedly last time. I mean, as an example, and this wasn't at the very beginning of the last wave, but the, you know, last time around, Kleiner Perkins was probably the sort of poster child for this. And they they had a whole separate fund, the Green Growth Fund, right? So it was an entire strategy publicly defined around clean tech at the time, which we've not seen to your point yet from from any of the mainstream investors. However, what I would say that we have seen and has happened since COVID is a couple of new mega funds that are coming out of the corporate side. So particularly Amazon and Microsoft, right, which respectively have announced a $2 billion fund and a $1 billion fund, $2 billion for Amazon, $1 billion for Microsoft, um, and are starting to invest. So those are obviously, in the context of the size of this sector and this market historically, those feel big. Um, and you know, to deploy a fund of that size, they have to be looking at some later stage things. They might do some LP commitments as well. We, and at EIP announced that Microsoft, their first investment out of their climate innovation fund was an LP investment in, in our fund, um, but they're going to be doing direct investment presumably as well and have to be doing some later stage stuff. So from an ecosystem perspective, then you've got mainstream investors continuing to dip their toes, albeit with the added COVID lens attached. Um, and then you've got big new pools of capital coming from these corporate funds. And so I guess at the highest level, do you think that the emerging frothiness in climate tech that was uh, coming at the beginning of this year remains or is everything more sober just because of COVID? I think as a general statement, everything is more sober because of COVID. That's, that's motherhood and apple pie. 
I think the reality of Microsoft and Amazon and others starting to jump in uh, with real dollars is that that is a it's a crowd in activity. They aren't necessarily return seeking investments. Uh, I think those entities and you would know better shell being close to Microsoft at this point is that those entities are really interested in skating to where the puck is going. Look out 10 or 15 years. Where's the world going? What's the price on carbon? What should they be doing to decarbonize their entire uh, effort? They generally have a ton of capital sitting around in treasury and on the balance sheet, and they want to be seeking returns, but they also want to be supporting their employees. They want to be supporting climate goals, and they want to make sure that they're mitigated from future risks, both climate and regulatory, as you think through things. So those large dollars being deployed into the ecosystem are extremely healthy. We view it as a very, very positive signal. It's also a different entity and different interest level uh, focused on than, than is traditionally focused on venture investing at the earliest stages where uh, a traditional venture fund might be leading new investments in a, in a seed series A or series B. Doesn't mean they won't, but uh, there's going to be some, some other interests out there as well. So I think the real trigger on the froth is when you see mainstream investors, the, those Sequoias and Union Squares and others who are exclusively devoting senior level talent towards chasing climate deals. I don't see that happening regardless. I mean, rewind six, six months ago. I, I don't didn't and don't see that happening from a full-time perspective for another couple of years. I think the ecosystem still has to evolve a little bit, but I do believe that we will continue to see ongoing increases in interest over the course of the next year or two as the ecosystem evolves in the innovation economy around the, on, on this subject. How much do you think that um, a triggering event for some of those investors dedicating full-time resources, senior resources to it, has to be good exits? I mean, you know, historically there there is a notable dearth of big venture exits in this space. There are exceptions. There were good venture exits in the space, but just as a proportion of overall deals, that's the knock on the sector. Do you think that that has to change before? you know, the mainstream investors will dedicate those resources? I don't, actually. Uh, and, and there's a there's some further level thinking on that. Historically, if you look at venture from 15, 20 years ago, you did need to see liquidity. You need to see exits. You need to see massive outcomes. In today's markets where you have late stage capital, the world is printing money, uh, late stage capital piling into late stage companies, what you need to see now are deals with a lot of momentum. They don't necessarily need to be public. They don't need to be acquired, but you need to see spin on a deal. And that usually means a ton of growth, sometimes regardless of how much cash is going out the door, but true late stage product market fit where uh, where companies are just ramping like mad. And I think that you see a couple of those deals float around in those growth funds uh, or those growth efforts within the larger funds. And all of a sudden, you're going to start seeing a lot of GPs focused, sorry, uh, general partners, so senior level talent at mainstream venture funds focused in on climate again. We're not quite there. There are some great companies out there that are growing really consistently. There haven't been that many what I would call venture hot deals that have been progressing through the stages uh, yet. I, I do think we will see that over the course of the next couple of years. Right. It's like if you rewind two years, you know, Uber and Lyft had not been exits for 
venture investors yet, but it was clear that those were massive growth deals. You know, early investors were going to make a lot of money on those deals. And so tons of investors flooded into, depending on how you want to define it, the ride sharing space, the mobility space, whatever it might be. So if we see something similar, if we see an Uber and Lyft in, in climate tech, then maybe they go the same way. What we have seen over the past six months or so is what appears to be a lot of excitement for a variety of different climate tech type companies in the public markets. So, you know, you've got fake meat through Beyond Meat, right? That has some crazy multiple attached to it. Tesla's share price is absolutely through the roof. And then more recently, we have the Nikola Motor SPAC that is currently, you know, last time we had a podcast episode about it, it was at 17 billion market cap. Now it's down to 11, but it's still $11 billion market cap. There are two or three more SPACs that have already been announced in this space. Um, EOS, the energy storage company, Hylion, another heavy duty transportation company, uh, Fisker Motors, um, another failed and, you know, uh, resurrected from the dead electric vehicle company. So there's like clearly a fair amount of public market momentum in this space. I wonder how much you make of that um, as an indication that the public markets are hungry for climate tech type deals versus just that the public markets are frothy in the first place. It's right now. totally confused. I mean, digressing slightly on specs, and I am no expert, so you should ignore everything I say here, which is why you have me here today. And just as a reminder, a SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company, which is uh, an acronym. It's a, uh, you create a public company, raise a bunch of capital, a couple hundred million dollars, typically sometimes more, into a shell that is publicly traded, which then has 24 months to find and acquire a private company, which then it merges into it and becomes a public company. So it's an alternative mechanism to go public versus the traditional IPO route or a direct listing, which is a, a third option. SPACs are an interesting vehicle. They have a lot of capital to throw around. They'll pick up companies. Historically, they are not known to attract the highest quality institutional investors uh, as an ongoing shareholder base. Uh, if you're trying to build a long-term durable business, SPACs are usually not the way that shareholders, early shareholders, seek liquidity and seek financing. So, Abe, is there a lot of noise in this SPAC activity currently? I mean, what do you make of it all? I think there's a ton of noise. What is hard to parse is that there will be investors, venture and other investors that make a lot of money. They return capital to their LPs outside of our climate goals at Congruent. That is clearly a big focus is showing climate returns. You want to show real dollars that are recycled to your investors. These SPACs are doing that for many. The challenge is, is what happens in the two to three year time frame. When these companies are public for that long, they do have to abide by some public market regulation and therefore they will be doing earnings calls. And typically, not always, what you see is a severe degradation of value over time. Uh, and so you may have gotten liquidity. There may not be a lockup, uh, which is a, a, a unique aspect of this uh, SPAC uh, regulatory regime. But what happens in two to three years? That matters. Uh, when, when you've got the um, Teslas of the world going public, staying healthy, staying, staying public and seeing real value appreciation, it's very different than somebody who's been acquired 
and has been around in the public markets for six to nine months. So the short version is it's it's quite confusing. I think there will be a lot of dollars that are made. The challenge is there will also be a lot of dollars that are lost. And eventually this window of, of SPACs, the SPAC attack is going to close. Uh, and, and then what are you going to do? Because many companies right now, I promise, are going through the process of preparing themselves to go meet these SPACs, go public. And probably by the time that you're doing that, if you haven't already started those conversations already, it's going to be too late. But setting aside the specific SPAC thing, which I think is, you know, it's fascinating on its own and we'll see where it all goes. Do you take anything from the fact that what we've seen so far, whether it be from the Nikola SPAC or add together Tesla and Beyond Me and these other things, like, is that an indication of public market interest in climate tech? Can you, can we state that? I think you can state anything you'd like. I think in this particular <laughs> case, it, it is a partial public interest. What I would say is that um, you talked about this in the prior show as well. ESG fund flows. There are a lot of funds out there looking for high quality investment that actually hit kind of ESG goals. There aren't that many names out there that really kind of hit the top tier of that. So there is a lot of interest from high quality institutional investors in investing in climate at the latest stages. I'm not sure that's the same market that is attracting SPAC capital, although I may be wrong uh, there. Uh, I think also on the retail side, uh, there's a lot of discussion about you know whether some of the millennial and Gen Z uh, investors through Robinhood in particular have been you know pushing up uh, Tesla share price, for example. I, I have no specific opinion on that, but it wouldn't surprise me if that were the case. From the retail perspective, I do expect that there is a lot of interest uh, in investing in things that align with values. Uh, of the people controlling those dollars. So in general, I would say yes. Then the next question is, okay, is there enough high quality financial product to go through, meaning companies, to go through the traditional IPO route? And will the banks actually underwrite those companies? And I I don't have a strong opinion on that yet. I I don't see that activity right now. I may be wrong, but uh, I'm not seeing the banks. uh, Usually during an open window, you, you get a lot of inbounds from high quality banks asking who they should go talk to. I'm not seeing that yet. I think that's right. I think that we you know, we talked about this last time too, which is that there are a few um, companies that you would call climate tech companies that I think are, you know, headed down IPO road. Um, but it's not a huge number. And so where there's more activity has been earlier stage in the, you know, not just in the types of deals that you play in the sort of pre-seed and seed world, but even the stuff that we do, series A, B, C, um, but not yet quite at that like pre-IPO land. And so it'll be interesting to see how all of these timelines align because those companies that that we're investing in, for example, might be IPO candidates in two, three years. The companies you're investing in might be IPO candidates in six, seven years, who knows, 10 years. And so What's an IPO? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, and so, you know, will the will the window continue to be open at that point? And what will have happened? You know, to your point, with all the SPAC attack, um, then may dictate whether there's a really profitable, really successful outcome for a bunch of these companies. I think that's exactly right. The concern that I have is more value destruction. So, if the SPACs go out, they're public. There's a lot of activity in climate-related companies, and then a lot of capital is flushed over the next couple of years. 
then we're we're digging out of a hole again from an investor perspective uh, perception perspective and that is not ideal that was exactly the risk it was a different version of exactly the risk we talked a little bit about 6 months ago which was anytime you have froth you know the risk is that that froth turns into a bubble the bubble pops and then it takes time to rebuild the sector it certainly happened in the last cycle with clean tech and i was worried 6 months ago that because there was so much sudden excitement around climate tech, it was going to happen in this sector. I'm still worried about it now, but from a totally different perspective, which is now all of a sudden it's in the public markets more than in the venture world that that I worry about that happening. But I, I share that concern, right? It's you, you really don't want big black marks on the sector, given that we can't really afford another cycle of like bubble popping downturn, seven years resumption of interest. So in general, Let's distill what you've just said here. Things are sound, I think the fundamentals sound relatively unchanged compared to before COVID. Is that what I'm hearing? I would say yes. I'm quite excited about the ongoing interest. And in fact, I think rather than froth, it's a nice tempered pace of investment in interest and dollars into the sector. Yeah. And I think the other thing that has been somewhat surprising is that, and this isn't specific to climate tech, I think this is true of venture capital in general, is that though the statistics you cited, Stephen, at the beginning are true, deal activity did plummet in the second quarter, it has come roaring back, at least from what we've been seeing, right? That, you know, I think everybody collectively took a pause when COVID hit because there was so much uncertainty. A lot of companies, you know, re-engineered their plans. They cut burn, they extended runway, they they did all the things that they needed to do. Um, but then as time has gone on, everything in the sort of deal flow world has started to resemble some degree of normalcy, albeit all digital. And so, it, you know, it turns out, you would have thought two months ago, this is an absolutely terrible time to raise capital and every company was optimizing for not having to do that right now. It turns out it's actually not that bad a time to be raising. All right. Well, coming up, I want to talk about uh, how that breaks down into interest in sectors and deal flow in particular sectors. First, let's talk about our supporters of the show. We're brought to you by Fluence. Energy storage has reached an inflection point in market adoption. We're still seeing tons of activity this year. It, of course, accelerates the deployment of renewables. It helps the world reach critical emissions reductions targets, and it delivers cost-effective grid services. So, I think our listeners are probably ready for the era of energy storage, and Fluence is as well. With over 12 years of experience and decades of energy sector knowledge, Fluence is your trusted partner for the most complex energy storage projects, pairing intimate market knowledge with cutting-edge technology and operational services. You can scale from 1 megawatt to gigawatt-sized deployments with solutions tailored to fit your specific use cases and application. Visit FluenceEnergy.com today to learn more. We're also brought to you by our parent company, Wood McKenzie. Look, on this podcast, we talk all about how coronavirus is changing the shape of U.S. power markets, and Wood McKenzie's research business is focused on exactly that. Uh, business electricity demand fell when people stopped going into the office. Household demand hasn't quite picked up the slack. Across the country, demand and power prices have dropped. The Wood McKenzie Power Team is here to help your business make decisions with confidence and minimize risk. They can help you understand what is happening in markets across the U.S. and across the globe. If this is the kind of market intelligence you're looking for right now, Wood McKenzie's right there for you. Reach out to power at woodmac.com or learn more about the power analysis at woodmackenzie.com. 
Shale, to your point, there was a big retrenchment in in investing in a, the March through April May timeframe. Uh, Stephen mentioned this at the beginning of the show. One of the challenges from a functional standpoint of any venture shop is that you you basically stop investing in new companies when you're trying to support wholesale your existing companies. You have to rearrange the deck chairs on where you're deploying your capital. You have to support the entrepreneurs you're working with. And it, it stops or slows new activity dramatically. Over the course of the last two or three months, to your point, activity has ramped like mad. Uh, for us, it feels even more intense than it was pre-shutdown and, and pre-COVID. We have actually invested in three new companies in the last month. And over the last couple months, I think it's now up to five new companies. And many of these situations were either oversubscribed or competitive. And that's quite unusual in the pre-seed seed sector in climate. So we're seeing a ton of activity. It's ramping like mad. And I, I do believe we're going to see a lot more activity over the course of the next three to six months as people settle into the new norm. Well, so what is making it ramp like mad? I mean, we're not talking about market forces here. We're talking about people like you two, right? You're the ones who are making these decisions. So why are you all of a sudden picking up the activity then? We see good deals with teams who we like. And that's it for us. We, we don't have a filter mechanism uh, like other funds typically because we, we're taking the raw feed. We're backing usually first time uh, or, or entrepreneurs who are just pulling the first capital together. About 80% plus of our deals actually are first institutional capital invested. So we don't look to other seed funds typically for deal flow. We just look to the entrepreneurial community. Uh, and of course, to our relationships in the ecosystem uh, like you and Shale to be sending us deals that are interesting at the earliest stages of capital formation. We see good deals, we see interesting teams, and uh, we invest. And so are those pictures strung up behind you from your kids, or are those pitch decks that entrepreneurs have sent you in the last few months? The quality is about the same sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would say we are we don't invest as early as Congruent does, so we're not the first institutional capital in ever. Um, but we also are seeing a ton of activity right now. And I think in part of what it, it we've seen at least is that um, through, you know, despite all predictions of the contrary, through the pandemic thus far, many of our portfolio companies are performing pretty well. And seeing that inside of our portfolio has lent us a little bit more confidence that the environment, the broader environment, is actually going to be supportive to new companies as well. And I think has, you know, because we're not seeing a, a dumpster fire in our own portfolio, it does two things. One is, you know, it means that we can actually open our eyes up to the outside world a little bit more than we would have otherwise, as Abe was saying, like when you're heads down, you've got a big portfolio and you're just trying to help all those companies navigate like one of the biggest uh, disruptive events in a century. You know, it doesn't leave you a lot of extra time. So one, you just have more time to think about broader things. But two, you, you realize that like not everything is falling apart in the world. I realize this makes us sound perhaps more positive about the world than we may or may not be in our personal lives. I mean, there are many things that are going terribly, terribly wrong, but it turns out that at least in some of these sectors, um, there's a fair amount of resilience to the the current environment. So you're, you both have this positive outlook on what's happening. Um, Abe, let's go to your portfolio. Why is your portfolio not struggling right now in this COVID world? Like what kind of companies are doing okay? I'm not sure I could claim to have a positive outlook, but uh, it's a good question on the portfolio construction. So taking that from the highest level, 
there have been some sectors that have just been completely blown up. Uh, I'm going to ignore the oil and gas sector, which is relevant, but we don't invest in that area at Congruent. But you think about uh, traditional retail, travel, leisure, that's not something that we have heavily focused on. We do have a fair bit of consumer in the portfolio that is typically e-commerce and is typically supply chain focused. And that is a specific area that has actually seen some pretty extremely positive tailwinds, which is if you have uh, constructed a supply chain or a closed loop e-commerce platform, for example, that doesn't require offshoring manufacturing, then all of a sudden you have a very resilient supply chain operation and there is a tremendous amount of demand for product that you can get at home. So some kinds of e-commerce have had a lot of tailwinds. Logistics uh, have had a lot of tailwinds, particularly in the last couple months. I think one of the things that the pandemic has done has exposed how fragile our supply chain is across the world, but particularly in the US as we have offshored many of our activities over the last 20 years. Uh, and I think there's a, a re-examination of a lot of those sectors that overlap a lot with uh, early stage and late stage climate and innovation. There's also uh, a whole subset, and most of our companies probably fall within this, outside of the B2C, so business to consumer, the B2B platforms, those companies that are selling to relatively healthy entities have not been tremendously impacted. What we did see is decision-making slowing down dramatically as, as all of these corporations uh, adjusted to the new normal uh, and tried to make decisions remotely. But after that has settled a bit, and I'm not claiming that that world is perfect, but after it has settled, uh, decisions are being made and we're seeing some very large ongoing contracts struck by many of our companies across the portfolio. One further double click on that. Early stage in general, I think, across venture was probably slightly more resilient than super late stage. The reasons being is that most of our companies are not particularly revenue dependent. These are funded on 18 to 24 month cycles. They're not looking to uh, generate gross margin to support their burn. And if they do need more capital, they don't need $50 million. They might need $2 million to hit the next milestone. So in the category of better to be lucky than smart for us, our portfolio is relatively young and therefore has ended up weathering the storm, I think, quite well, much better than expected when the news first began dropping. Not particularly revenue dependent is a uh, is a very clever way to describe companies that don't make any money. Um well, well, the, and the, the assumption going into COVID was that those companies would be insulated. And so, Shale, you are investing at a later stage in companies that are, you know, generating revenue. So yeah, somewhat revenue dependent, into... as Abe would put it. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, you know, it's like I said, it's been, I'd say, overall surprisingly positive. Um, and I think it's it's some of the same trends that Abe described, you know, are true later stage as well. But in addition, I guess I would say, you know, a lot of what we've invested in and what I think a lot of venture investors have invested in is, you know, could be broadly bucketed under digital transformation. And in particular, in our case, right, we have um, a lot of stuff that is trying to take a somewhat old legacy industry, which is energy or even particularly electricity, and bring it into the modern age with modern technology to be cleaner, more efficient, more resilient. And uh, that's a slow process generally, but in certain cases, COVID has drastically accelerated that, right? 
you know, for example, migration to the cloud for large enterprises um, has had to go much, much faster in a world where all of a sudden almost all of the large companies' employees are working remotely and they need to be still working off of similar documents and things like that. And so there's a bunch of cases where COVID has had a, a you know, accelerant impact um, just on the transition from an old analog world to a new digital world. Now, one thing we speculated about at the beginning of this crisis was how the funnel might close if you're not forming relationships at conferences. You're not able to have in-person meetings. I think it's also a concern, like if you're testing your technology and you can't get access to your lab, how that impacts your company. Here in Boston, you know, as it is, I'm sure, out in Silicon Valley, you know, we have a really massive innovation cluster here. And people are wondering, like, what is going to happen here? Like, nobody can meet in person. Uh, the benefits of this area are no longer there for a lot of entrepreneurs. So the question is, is the funnel still closing for future deals, future, you know, company formation because of this crisis? Have we begun to see the impact on that front? I don't think we have yet seen that impact. Company formation takes quite a while. Uh, it's a it's a laggy situation. Founders have to get together. They have to leave. There is a lot of whiteboarding and brainstorming that is being left on the table. And I do think that uh, company formation will probably slow to some extent. Uh, you will want to be working with entrepreneurs and executives who you've worked with before as you form a new company. Otherwise, it's very difficult to get to know somebody. I think that's been a challenge from an onboarding standpoint across big, small, uh, and other kinds of companies. You know, We're going through that as well as, as we ramp up our team. How do you create those interpersonal connections to actually form relationships and be productive in a, in a business environment? It's, it's a big challenge. I, I, so I think there may be a, a bit of a blip uh, I will say, though, I think that is being overwhelmed, at least in climate, by just a tremendous flow of tech talent who are interested in doing something that matters from a climate and environment perspective. That level of froth is increasing, and I think that is only good. And so, Abe, what about people getting access to labs, for example? One of the things we talked about in one of our previous conversations, and it's something that you're co-founder Josh has written about and talked about, and that is we live in a new world for climate tech, clean tech startups where they have access to a lot more resources, whether it be lab space, manufacturing space, sophisticated cloud computing. How about access to physical spaces? Is it still a problem? Because I know that there were a lot of concerns when COVID first hit the US. What? How is that impacting companies you're working with? It, it is absolutely impacting our portfolio. Having said that, almost all of our companies that are working with hardware, and that's it's certainly over a third, it might be up to half, I haven't done a count recently, are now going in uh, in, in a arranged, cautious way. So they're following social distancing guidelines, they're masking, uh, but people are getting access to the labs. Typically, what's happening now are those who are not actively doing something in their labs and their and their physical space are now working from home to give more space uh, for others. So the people who need to be in manufacturing, designing, experimenting, they are in. Uh, it, it probably has slowed collaboration a little bit, uh, given the fact that not too many people can be in the same room. All right. So I want to hear from both of you. What's hot right now? 
we live in a very different world from the last time we talked. So are there new areas that you're interested in that maybe you weren't thinking about before? I think one area that we've spent a lot of time in recently, although we've always spent some amount of time in, goes back to the discussion from before, which is around supply chain and resiliency. There's been a long discussion, particularly around the food supply chain, on on resiliency, on challenges from meat production, on the environmental impact, on food waste. And we have been re-examining that area uh, in quite some depth. We've made one small investment re- recently, which we haven't yet announced, that's focused on that area. But I do see a lot of additional interest as, as we have seen the knock-on effects of uh, the shelter-in-place orders uh, to the overall food supply chain in the U.S. and abroad. So that is one area that we're seeing a tremendous amount of interest in. I would say that if you're, you know, not specific to us, but just what sectors are hot in climate tech right now, food seems clearly to me to be at the top of that list. I would say pre-COVID mobility was the hottest sector for a couple of years, and it was generally very frothy, whether it was, you know, electric vehicles and all the surrounding technologies or autonomous vehicles and all the surrounding technologies, all that kind of stuff. Um, COVID certainly had an impact on on mobility, unsurprisingly, but I think what has emerged as the, the hot sector is now sort of food and all the food surrounding type of stuff. I would say second to that, I think there's also been increased interest around like land use and forestry based climate solutions. I think in part that is being driven by corporates making you know, public proclamations or investments or purchases of, you know, carbon removal type of uh, solutions. For me, one thing that I've been speaking, spending more time on than previously is looking at a whole basket of technologies that are going to be required for deep decarbonization of the energy sector. And so, you know, I think it's been widely recognized for a long time that, uh, you know, it's, you can get to whatever, 50, 60, 70, maybe 80% um, clean energy and in, in the electricity sector with a basket of existing technologies and that that last 20, 30, 40% is going to be pretty hard. What I think has changed is the time frame under which we're going to have to figure out that last 20, 30, 40% has been um, brought forward in a lot of cases because of all these 100% commitments from utilities and states and corporates and, you know, climate plans from presidential candidates and all this other kind of stuff. There's lots of folks and, you know, people trying to get it done really fast, recognizing the magnitude of the problem with climate change. Um, So that means that whole sectors like carbon capture, utilization and storage or hydrogen or baseload renewables or long duration storage or a whole host of other things that might have seemed a decade off into the future before you would see the first commercial traction for any of these companies actually, I think is is going to come a lot sooner than we would have thought otherwise. I'd add probably two more sectors that we're seeing a lot of entrepreneurial interest in and therefore deal flow within. One, I think there's been a good deal of ink spilled on, which is not a derivative, but actually monitoring, measuring, mitigating carbon. Uh, so Shale just touched on that. But surprising to us in many ways, we have seen a lot of talent that is focused specifically on new ways to measure personal carbon, to create APIs, to offset corporate carbon. There's a lot of really interesting companies and talent focused on an area that, frankly, is not that large from a transactional volume perspective. Uh, Interestingly, I I think it may be over time, and that would be the reason to invest now. (laughs) But 
that has been a bit of a surprise, uh, particularly because there hasn't been a lot of historical deal activity within it. The other area, which I also covered earlier, is around manufacturing and supply chain. I think two of the last four deals that we have executed have been in those areas. I think a lot of ink has been spilled on this as well. But steel production, for example, is depending on who, who you look at on the data, it's 7 to 9% of you know, greenhouse gas emissions every year versus what pre-COVID was, you know, commercial oil flights was what, 2.5%? Maybe that's all uh, air was 2.5% of a global GHG. That's a big, big footprint. And we are now seeing a, a number of really interesting companies being built around onshoring, uh, manufacturing supply chain efficiency, reducing waste within manufacturing, uh, and even new ways of creating some of those very energy intensive materials, which uh, are very hard to invest in, but fascinating from a the perspective of, uh, of an impact. I agree with both of those. I've been surp- I also have been surprised by the volume of activity in the measure mitigate um, carbon world, whether for consumers or corporates. But we talked about this before on a previous episode about the sort of resurgence of carbon markets and carbon offsets. I think there's something happening there. So I've been ex- sort of excited to see all that activity and some really great talent going into that. And then, yeah, I mean, I think that your example of steel is a good one, which maybe I could even broaden the bucket that I described before from deep decarbonization of of energy to just like, you know, we're turning our collective eye towards the hard to decarbonize stuff. The easy, I mean, relatively speaking, nothing's easy. The easier to decarbonize stuff right now is to just build a bunch of wind and solar and lithium ion batteries on the grid. And then maybe behind that to electrify light duty transportation not that there aren't still fantastic venture opportunities in all those things, but those are the those are the, the somewhat tried and true solutions. Behind those comes a whole raft of much more difficult solutions, be they in the energy sector like I was describing or in the world of industrial emissions like Abe was describing. Okay, so a company comes to you asking for money. Are there questions that you are asking teams now that you were not asking at the beginning of the year? At the earliest stages for us, not really. Usually, we will not take a meeting with a company that we know is you know, doing something in travel or leisure, uh, just because it's <laughs> not an area of, of interest. But if somebody's walking in with a new supply chain transparency you know, uh, software platform, same questions as previous. I think it may be different for, for Shale, who is investing in these later stage companies that have now been through the cycle, so they really understand how COVID is impacting them directly. Yeah. I mean, I I was trying to think about what's different. I don't think fundamentally how we think about companies and what's investable and what's not has changed as a result of COVID. One of the questions though, that is relevant to all the companies that we would think about investing in that may be less so for Abe is what has been the impact of COVID? How have you addressed it? And in some ways it's actually been a really, you get a strong signal of the, the leadership of a company to see how they reacted to a really adverse or very hard to predict event within the past few months. And so there's an additional question there that I think is illuminating. But in terms of what questions we ask to determine whether a company is going to um, be a good fit for us or not, I actually don't think anything like fundamental has changed. All right. So it's weird to ask this as like the last question, but because it's been on my mind and I have a soapbox I want to jump on about it. Um, is climate tech a sector? 
Because I think the way that it is described often these days when people are talking about climate tech is like, it's a thing like robotics is a thing, or it's a thing like social media is a thing. Um, And I guess my view on that is a little different, but I'm curious to get yours. Climate is not a sector. Right. Let's be clear. Just not, it's not a sector. It's everything we do. It's how we live. It's how we work. It's how we function. It's how we procure. It's how we buy. Climate is everywhere. And that's the opportunity, which is how can you invest in venturable activities that will have an impact on climate? Some of those things are a direct frontal assault, like measuring and monitoring and mitigating carbon. Others are supply chain efficiency. Maybe not a direct frontal assault, but it has a massive knock-on impact. So I think that is one of the questions that uh, I hope to ask a, a lot of mainstream investors. How do you think about this? If you're interested in climate, what does that actually mean? Yes, exactly. What does that mean to you? And is there anything true about the entirety of the climate tech universe defined as you want to define it? You know, there there may be some policy tailwinds you can imagine that would be true across most of the sector. But broadly to me, we're talking about a loose amalgamation of a variety of different technology suites in a variety of different sectors that share one common characteristic, which is that they do something to combat or understand or perhaps adapt to climate change, Um, which means that it's just a bunch of different disciplines to me all sort of bucketed together. I think you just articulated our investment thesis. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Abe Yukel is managing partner and co-founder of Congruent Ventures. Abe, thanks so much for rejoining us, and we hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me. Shale, good to talk to you. Likewise, Stephen, as always. You're on vacation next week. I am. I'm headed off to the southern Oregon wilderness to get off the grid for a few days. To reflect on the future of climate tech. Exclusively, yeah. Truly the Yeti. (laughs) living up to my name if you don't know what abe is talking about go back and listen to our first episode from last year with him on why shale is called the yeti with that though we'll leave that as a mystery if you don't know uh shale khan is my co-host ingrid lobet is our senior editor sean marquand mixed the show we are a co-production of postscript audio and green tech media and uh you know you can do all the regular things that we ask for to support this show. Go to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review, or anywhere else you get your shows. Hit us up on social media. We definitely listen to your ideas, even if we don't respond. So we appreciate you uh, tweeting stuff out there for us. And uh, thanks for listening, as always. I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media.